Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on liability-aware investing. I'm Joe Staccato, head of Defined Benefit, and with me today are Allison McCartney, Client Portfolio Manager in Multi-Asset Solutions, and Prashant Lamba, Head of Fixed Income Solutions, all at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to J.P. Morgan Insights. Great to be here. Thanks. I've heard someone say that there's 20 years of evidence that suggests there's never a good time to embrace LDI, but there's plenty of regret if you don't. I think that sums it up pretty well, at least a lot of the client conversation that I'm involved in. When I think back of LDI, particularly the past maybe decade or so, a number of plan sponsors bought into this concept of having a glide path. They bought into this concept of divorcing their asset allocation into the growth bucket and a hedging bucket. And they started to kind of put in triggers on how to work through this glide path. The unfortunate thing is that the market environment that we've seen in the past 10 years with low returns and low rates, it just hasn't been the right environment for actually to have that work. What we're seeing is that there's a lot of disappointment out there in corporate pension plan space. People have asked CFOs for contributions, and at the end of the day, they're really no better off than they were about 10 years ago. Comes out every quarter what the average funded status amongst the companies in the S&P 500 are, and it's somewhere between 80 and 85%. With this as a backdrop, what are we talking to clients about with regard to their fixed income portfolios if they've decided to go down an LDI path? Those are exactly some of the challenging conversations we are having these days with our client base. They're looking for help, and what I've been advising them on is build a better bond portfolio, have a disciplined hedging program, but add some dynamic nature to it, whether it be opportunistic or tactical, and have a manager that can do that for them. When you say build a better portfolio, what does that mean? A better portfolio balances the need for income or growth over and above the liability and having the hedging characteristics that reduce surplus volatility. My assumption is that you're going to see rates muddle along for some period of time, but maybe with many spikes and many drops that might create opportunity. What is your take there? That's a fair point. But first, let me deep dive into what the markets present ourselves with as the opportunity set. We are closing in on one of the third largest, longest post-depression expansions, non-US investors including, record bond supply having been met with this unsatiated demand for yields from both institutional and retail investors. Overall, it's been a low volatility environment, and that's good for bond investing. But that also presents a challenge. What if volatility picks up? What do you do with it? Are you prepared for it? We currently expect a range-bound interest rate environment. However, in that environment, there will be opportunities to add duration and be tactical. So let's start with rates. I'm going to reference the PPO, the Pension Protection Act, in 2006 and say, since then, we have had bouts of volatility. Rates have been higher or lower within a range of 100 to 150 basis points, depending on what rate you look at. And pensions had an opportunity to capture some of that volatility. And that would have meant adding another source of additional alpha into the portfolio that would then improve funding status. What are some examples of what you mean when you're saying adding sources of alpha? When you look at how the curve behaved in these different environments, and I'll define that as rates rising as bearish for fixed income, falling bullish, and 
the curve on the long end going higher is steepening and falling is flattening. There have been many, many, many different types of interest rate environments we have witnessed over the last 10 years. Because rates have fallen, we have seen a large steepening in the curve. That's good and bad for pensions. It's good because the value of their liabilities, while it looks bigger, hasn't fallen as much as it would have been if it was indexed to a short curve, short rate. But that's also a challenge going forward because we are expecting indeed now that the curve is steep of flattening going into the future, which means that pensions should not expect a silver bullet from rates rising mm. solving for all pension problems. Interesting. So Prashant, tell us a little bit more about the sectors that you're seeing opportunities in right now. A traditional hedging asset class has been long duration corporate bonds. If you looked at those sectors today, the challenge is that while technicals look strong from investor buying and demand we talked about earlier, fundamentals are about fair. You look at the M&A cycle, profitability which is falling and now stabilizing, and valuations are tight, adjusted for leverage. We are indeed entering a mid to late credit cycle. What that does is inform us that there may be opportunities to add additional sectors to a bond portfolio to make it better. I'll tell you what I mean. We're looking at collateralized mortgage obligations or CMOs, which are predominantly agency backed. We're looking at delegated underwriting and servicing bonds or dust bonds as they're called in the market. To add to a corporate bond portfolio, diversify it, add a stable income and yet have a hedged portfolio that hasn't added significant amounts of surplus volatility. Sounds like there is a lot of opportunity within the fixed income market. What about Allison outside of fixed income? I think the two things that we're hearing most frequently from plant sponsors when we speak to them are one, how am I supposed to de-risk my portfolio without giving up that expected return or how do I continue de-risking with rates where they are? And two, I've de-risked my portfolio but I've lost sight of what my expected return on assets is. How do I achieve that now? How do I bring that back into focus? So I think that that extends to Prashant's point in the bond markets where you can be more opportunistic and more tactical, but also in a total portfolio context, thinking outside of just bonds and adding more asset classes to your hedging portfolio and total portfolio. I think that historically we've seen, as Joe was talking about, the kind of failure of LDI and the ability to implement LDI a lot of plan sponsors put on glide paths as a form of governance to make sure that they do risk. And those plan sponsors tended to be the ones that actually did buy into LDI and saw that upside when fixed income was really the only asset you wanted to own in the past few years. But where we think that that falls short is dividing your portfolio into a return-seeking portfolio and a risk-reducing portfolio fails to look at the correlations between those two buckets. Isn't that the only free lunch in finance, diversification? Diversification is the only free lunch in finance, exactly. So I think that when a lot of plan sponsors build a glide path, they do look at, okay, what's the surplus volatility expected from my growth portfolio? But that's primarily based on long-term correlations. I think when we look at portfolios, we look at long-term correlations across all asset classes, but also the short-term correlations and behaviors of different asset classes to add more value. I think a really interesting example is if you look back at when a lot of plan sponsors built glide paths based on historical correlations. The number one asset class that you would not want to own based on the fact that you're looking for higher correlations to a long-term corporate bond yield would be real estate. 
so given the behavior of real estate versus corporate bonds in the financial crisis, that looks very unattractive if you're just optimizing. What we saw is a moderate growth environment with low yields. So there's a search for yield, which you have in real estate, and real estate should outperform in kind of moderate growth. High growth, you expect equities to outperform. Moderate growth, real estate should perform well on the back of an improving economy. What I'm hearing you say is that your approach is to go into see understanding what's going on in the economy, in the environment right now, and you're going to break through the silos of different asset classes. You're going to recognize that every asset class has both return properties to it as well as risk reducing or hedging properties to it. And you're going to put together a portfolio that's going to take advantage of those properties at that moment in time. And then on top of that, you're going to not be religious about keeping correlations constant. You're going to recognize that correlations do slip around and present opportunities that you can capitalize on. Absolutely. We talked about the real estate example, but on a long-term basis, you want to own long bonds. You want to own duration. They should reduce. If you think about the two largest drivers of surplus volatility in a portfolio, it's your duration mismatch to the liability, which people have tried to minimize through LDI programs, but also the overall level of equity risk. So if you can invest in asset classes that have attractive correlations to your liability, so they reduce the equity risk, or that have some duration coverage, those asset classes can be both risk-reducing and return-seeking. We think every asset class, if you look at the correlations and diversification benefit, should be both return-seeking and risk-reducing. On a shorter-term basis, thinking about those kind of correlations that we talked about, so as Prashant said, a lot of people are afraid to buy into rates right now. That's caused a lot of hesitation to buy more bonds in the portfolio. On a short-term basis, what's happened in the past few months or year has been a very persistent negative correlation between duration and risk assets. So not only is the duration a good hedge against your liability, but it should also be a hedge against that equity risk in your portfolio. So adding on to that duration, even if you think that it might be costly if rates do rise, should also reduce that impact of equity markets and global risk assets fall. Like we saw during Brexit, for example, you could hedge that risk by taking a trade on the pound by going underweight UK equities, looking against financials, or you could buy duration because when risk assets fall, duration performs well, given that kind of global demand from pensions, insurance companies, banks, and longer term investors. Great thoughts, Allison. This diversification concept sounds very obvious. How are you actually doing it with client portfolios? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think going back to the points I made before, where we're talking to clients about how do I de-risk without giving up that return? One way that we've worked with a lot of clients has been to actually implement multi-asset portfolios within the kind of LDI de-risking bucket. If you're thinking about that next contribution that you just got from your CFO and how do you invest that in a manner that de-risks the portfolio without giving up that return, we like to structure portfolios that mimic what the actual plan sponsor objectives are. So your primary benchmark is your liability, right? That is what you're trying to improve funded status by outperforming your liability. So if you think about a typical LDI portfolio, let's say you have a long bond index and you're seeking to achieve 1% to 2% excess returns at 2 to 3% tracking error by going into those extended sectors, you can also structure LDI portfolios that are looking to outperform that liability by more like 3 to 4% while taking on a higher degree of active risk, so maybe 6 to 8, and it has a much broader asset class range. So it's still a de-risking portfolio, but it's also very returns-based. The goal of the portfolio is a high level of excess returns to the liability by investing in those other asset classes. 
and understanding that you need active risk to get there and you need all those asset classes. I remember this client conversation, if I'm not mistaken, I think the client referred to it as dirty LDI because they were so underfunded that they just needed to not be so precise on the liability matching aspect of it and just looking for as much extra return or tracking error as possible. Right, if you're 80% funded, you could build a portfolio that dollar for dollar matches your liability, but it's still only $80 of the 100. So you need to realize that you need to take on that active risk to get that extra you know, exposure there and get that extra return that's gonna improve your funding and seek that excess return over your liability. Addison, you bring up an interesting point implementation of the LDI portfolio, whether it's dirty LDI or more pure LDI. In a more pure LDI setting, we have seen clients come to us and say, I have managers who are good core bond managers, they can do long duration, implement the same style, but they're not LDI managers. What we do for them is sit with a seat alongside the pension plan sponsor, advise them on all of those decisions we talked about earlier, interest rates, spread risk, diversifying the bond portfolio, structural risk, illiquidity risk, which is private credit within fixed income. And all of those decisions then are made at the top of the house. And each of the underlying bond managers that the client may have look like a standard public benchmark. Example, Barclays long gov credit, long credit, long corporate A or better. But at the top, we complete that portfolio to what looks like more of the liability yet has some of the characteristics of growth and hedging that are balanced. How else have clients implemented? We've worked with some clients in kind of a vertical slice fashion, saying that we'll have not just the liability as a benchmark, that can be a secondary benchmark, but your primary benchmark is kind of that strategic policy allocation, right? So every portfolio will probably have a strategic policy allocation that their expected return on assets is based on we'll have that same objective and look to beat that strategic policy portfolio the same way that the plan sponsor is looking to do with the same kind of objective, same kind of opportunity set. So that also is a way that we work with clients. Another way is we could be a dedicated asset allocation manager within a growth bucket. That tends to be very common as well. What I'm getting away from your comments there is that in today's environment, again, with really depressed expected returns, you're going to need to be more open-minded around these ideas of being cross-asset class and breaking down the silos and trying to find all the little nooks and crannies of return. That's probably the only way that a plant sponsor kind of gets to the point where their funded status gets to the conversation of maybe thinking about hibernation. Absolutely. I think that if you look at our long-term capital market assumptions over the past few years, the 60-40 portfolio return has consistently come down. And we see that's happening even in this year's capital markets that are coming out right around now. And so how do you add value over that? First, you have plant sponsors that said, I want to benchmark my total portfolio to the liability. So that was a big step forward from benchmarking to the 60-40. That's realizing what your risks are. But you still have that backdrop of in your kind of glide path structure, in any kind of structure where you have an asset-based benchmark as your primary return objective, that benchmark has come down significantly and isn't going to meet those expected return targets. So how do you add value over that? And that, I think, is within fixed income, talking about building better bonds, but then also extending that. So if you look at private credit, if you look at high yield, if you look at long short managers that have a high probability of adding alpha, it's how do you improve that base case outcome of improving your funded status? So by beating the performance of your liability, and then how do you reduce that tail risk that your funded status falls? And that comes down to targeting a minimum level of surplus volatility. I would agree first with Allison's comments and add that 
we do see that extended sectors, emerging markets, high yield and high quality high yields, to my earlier comment on high quality duration, has a role to play in hedging plan liabilities and generate growth that's over and above a liability that's too perfect, a discount rate that's too perfect, meaning you have no defaults on the liability or you cannot afford to make defaults on the liability, but you can default on your bond portfolio or have downgrades incurred in the bond portfolio. When we talk about hibernation, which is something you said earlier, we look at taking the surplus volatility risk down, but doing it in a smart way and not just matching everything up so that there is the probability that my asset portfolio is going to be behind in terms of performance than the liability portfolio. We can play that with decisions we make on rates, decisions we make on how much credit spread. We talked about diversifying away from owning pure credit spread, adding volatility as a factor in bond portfolios. The other thing pension plans are struggling with now is with the PPF funding relief, they are led to believe that they have no interest rate sensitivity in their liabilities. Pension plans can be sellers of an option to a buyer, essentially a hedger, like an insurance company, looking for protection from rising interest rates. Why would a pension sell that option? Because pensions are natural buyers of bonds at higher interest rates. By selling an option today, they're locking into a future higher yield. That is a nice way to generate additional income in the portfolio while pensions are waiting for rising interest rates. Overall, I would say there are many ways we can implement a bond portfolio. Don't fear duration, be bold. I think it's interesting the point that Prashant's making about synthetics. I think synthetics are a pretty powerful tool and there's sometimes a little bit of fear around embracing them. I think going back and not to beat a dead horse, but going back to those drivers of surplus risk, that duration mismatch, that equity risk, if you use a synthetic portfolio to reduce that duration gap, you then freed up that capital where you don't have to invest it in low returning fixed income, right? So what we've also seen a lot of success in is using synthetic portfolios to reduce the duration gap and then use that extra capital to invest in asset classes that have lower surplus risk than equities, but a higher return expectation than kind of your traditional long-term fixed income. So I think Prashant's point about that being the demand for it and being a very flexible way to implement duration hedging, it also helps in your total portfolio because you freed up that capital to invest and you have more flexibility there. I think that's the key point of this discussion here, creating flexibility within your portfolio, whether you're talking about strictly a bond portfolio or a multi-asset class portfolio. Just to summarize a little bit, the concept of a glide path structure that splits growth and hedge assets, it basically rewinds about 40 years of proven portfolio management practice in terms of really running optimal portfolios. I was discussing this with a client not too long ago and bringing up the point that he's basically giving up on, you know, like I said earlier, the only free lunch in finance. And he said, you know what, you're right, but it's really hard to do. It's really hard to take advantage of that situation. And I basically ended up and I said to him, look, why don't we show you how we can solve it together and let's build a better portfolio. Thank you for being on JP Morgan Insights. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more podcasts on other relevant fixed income themes on iTunes and on our website. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. 
Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan. The Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001. CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 5514-3832080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco JP Morgan SA. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated. And in the United States, by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. Recorded September 21, 2016.